Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Whitney Johnson, author of the great book, Disrupt Yourself, and host and founder of the Disrupt Yourself podcast. Whitney, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to have you on the show. And I've been, as I said to you off air, read the book and been really catching up on the podcast and they're fantastic. It's a great credit to you. Thank you. I love the concept because we all talk about disruption in in industries or companies or even now with automation and artificial intelligence people are kind of going oh my my job or my role is going to be disrupted but you really say in a way take the power back and actually disrupt yourself just like any good company should exactly my my premise is that the the fundamental unit of disruption is the individual that companies don't disrupt people do and so the question we ask ourselves is are we going to cope with disruption or are we going to, and be acted upon, if you will, or are we going to act and, and find ways to harness disruption? And I think when we realize that the fundamental unit of disruption is the individual, then we are, as you just said, in a position to take that power back and harness the disruption that we, we see happening. And for that reason, it's a very exciting time for us to be living because there is so much disruption. There's a lot more for us to harness. And that's what I loved with the book. It's bordering on a leadership book and a a self-help book in a way where it's kind of saying, you know what, you got to take the power here and not let it happen to you. Don't be a turkey counting the days down to Christmas. (laughs) I've never heard that metaphor, but yeah, exactly. (laughs) We, We get to take the power. And so I think when we realize that it is we can't control things, but we can control ourselves. So if we will do that, then there is actually so much that we can accomplish. Yeah, and it'd be great to hear about you because I get the feeling you've got the personality trait for a disruptor in that you're curious and you question things and you question the status quo because it seems very much part of your makeup from reading the book and from listening to your podcast. It'd be great to know your own background, Whitney. I've been a disruptor for a long time, even though I didn't realize that I was. And I think that's that oftentimes happen happens. You know, I, I can think about even in elementary school. Um, <laughs> I was in third grade, and um, I had a teacher named Mrs. Smirker, and she um, wrote up on the board uh, the word "there," like they are going to the store, and so a contraction. And she wrote T H E Y apostrophe E R, <laughs> and um. And I raised my hand and I was like, no, 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 Mrs. Smirker, that's wrong. It's T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E. So here I am, this eight-year-old girl, you know, correcting my school teacher. And I think that, um, you know, it's funny when we think about this word disruptor, because we think of it in so many, in certainly within school as being something that is, is messing with and making it very difficult for the classroom to function. But I think all of us have these sort of disruptive tendencies in us when we're young and in school and we end up quashing them because I got in a lot of trouble for correcting her. She did not congratulate me for correcting her. But I I do think that, you know, if you look around 
six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, we all tend to be very disruptive. And interestingly, whenever I'm actually giving a speech and I ask people, how many of you got sent to the principal's office when you were in school? And it doesn't matter whether it's accountants or doctors or financial professionals, at least half the audience raises their hand and says, yeah, I got sent to the principal's office. So you know, I'm eight years old, but I think that my notion of really disrupting started when I, after I graduated from college and I moved to New York with my husband. So he was getting his PhD at Columbia Medical School and we got there and here I had just majored in music. I discovered Wall Street. I mean, it was really exciting because this is the late 80s, early 90s. So you have, you know, Liars Poker and Working Girl and all these amazing Wall Street movies. And I thought, I want to work on Wall Street. But here I was, you know, not trained to do that. I'd never set foot in any sort of business course. I was a female. Um, and so I could not walk through the front door. I had to walk through the side door, which was basically walking in as a secretary. And so that was me being a low end disruptor. But then throughout the course of my career, I found now that there have been a number of times when I've actually disrupted myself as opposed to disrupting something else. So um, when I was about, uh, let's see, I'd been in investment banking for about five years. And in this particular case, I was disrupted moving from banking to equity research. But then when I moved to the top of the ladder in equity research, I disrupted myself by walking away from a really good salary, a lot of prestige within my specific niche of the world and decided to become an entrepreneur. And then another sort of experience of disruption happened just a couple years ago where we were living in Boston and my husband got an opportunity to work at a small liberal arts college in central Virginia in the United States. And we picked up and moved from Boston to this small rural town of about 20,000 people. So this notion of of either being a disruptor or disrupting myself has played out over and over and over again in my life. And I didn't really realize that until I read Innovator's Dilemma, but I've found that it's it's a recurring theme for me. It really resonates with me what you said about the childhood because we do quash that out of our children. Like I, I really became aware of how many times children are told to put their hand down and stop asking so many questions. And in the way the world's going, in the way of automation and artificial intelligence and the, the questions being answered by machines, the, the value mm. becomes in the people who ask the questions as long as they're asking the right questions. But so many people don't A, ask questions of themselves like, is my job coming to its end or am I happy in it? Will I move to a different role? And then B, of the company and of the status quo like you did uh, with the teacher, calling out the emperor has no clothes and we we quash and we quiet <laughs> we quieten those kids and then and then we wonder why industries are getting disrupted and people are like automatons themselves they're like drones going into their job they are unsatisfied and dissatisfied with their role and where, where the company is going and and we start this process at a very very young age and then we send them to school and we get them to collect dots not connect dots and, and what's your take on that, on how to mm. almost take the poison out of the well at a young age? Well, first of all, I love what you just said, collect instead of connect. I, I've never heard that before, and that's really a lovely way to describe it. I think that the way we can pull that out is, you know, starts with the children that were, are around us. I mean, you know, some of us have 
are around lots of children. Some of us are around just a few children, but, you know, being willing to ask them what their opinions are. So we have children that are 16 and 20 respectively. And I just had a conversation with my daughter earlier this week where she has said to us, you know, I have very different political views than you and dad do. And, you know, but she never shares them with us because she knows that they're very different than what we are, ours are. And I said to her the other day, you know, Miranda, I'd really, you know, I'd like to hear what you're thinking. I'd like to hear what your political views are, even though, you know, you know that we're not going to necessarily agree with them. And so I think that making it safe for, for there to be, you know, to agree to disagree and to be able to have that, that discourse the other thing that I did the other day is I, I teach a class of young women of 16, 17 years old um, within our church. And instead of asking them questions like, okay, so what's the answer to this? Knowing that it's something like that they could have memorized and just kind of repeated and regurgitated back to me. I said to them, you know, I've just said X, Y, and Z. What do you think about this? What are your thoughts? And so I think a willingness to just ask children ask teenagers what do you think and there's no right answer there's no wrong answer it's just what do you think i think that's a really good way for us to to be able to sort of depoison or detoxify the well so that um once people move into adulthood once they move into the workplace they're willing to actually share their thoughts because they know how and they haven't forgotten how to do that yeah, and, and and what you're saying there as well also leads it nicely into allowing them to fail or not not being black or white. The answer isn't black or white. It's it could be grey, and that's okay. You, you mentioned in the book Carl Dweck's work and mindset and and encouraging that growth mindset in children, and it would be great to elaborate a little bit on that, Whitney. So Carol Dweck amazing book. And one of the things that she has written and, um, and actually one of her acolytes or protégés, um, Heidi Grant Haverson has also written about is that one of the reasons that so many of us struggle with the idea of failure is that from a very young age, we, our identity is attached to whether or not we do a good job or something on, on a test, for example. So, you know, you, you take a test, you get an A on it and you say, oh, you're so smart. And so in a person's brain, they say to themselves, well, if I got an A on the test, I'm smart. If I got a B on the test, I'm dumb. And so our identity gets attached to success or failure, smart versus dumb, success versus failure. And so what ends up happening as, and, and most of the people that, you know, like to read or listen to these kinds of podcasts are people who did pretty well in school. They're interested in learning and developing and growing. And so um, one of the th ways that we can um, make it possible for people to fail is to pull our identity out of the equation, um, to recognize that when you try something new, this is not a referendum on your sense of self, your identity on who you are. It's simply you tried something new and it, it, it's completely separate from your identity. Again, that's hard to do because from a very young age, we're taught that, in fact, if we did an A, if we got an A, we're smart. So one of the things that I'm trying to really emphasize, not only with my daughter, but people that I work with is, you know, thank you for working so hard on this. I see that you worked really hard. Thank you for putting in such a solid effort because that's something that can, they have complete control over. And so if we reward people for trying, we reward people for showing up, for doing 
putting in just really good, solid work, then their identity is attached to that, which is something that you want their identity to be attached to. How hard do they try? How much they show up? Yeah, it's so true. I, I was a professional sports player, professional rugby player before Whitney, um, before the professional world, well, a second uh, disruption <laughs> in my own world. Right. But, so what I found was the players who were not necessarily the most talented or the most naturally gifted had to work harder. And, and so therefore they created this habit of hard, hard work to your point about, you know, yep. realizing, well, if I work hard, actually that there's merit behind that, but it's actually, you know, transferring, you know, the skill of being able to pass off my left or right hand into the business world isn't very transferable. But what is, is that habit, the habit of, applying a canvas of I work hard and I have these habits of working hard and not being afraid of failure. And that becomes your new, that becomes your transferable skill. Which is such an important transferable skill. And, you know, it's interesting. I was watching this documentary on um, ESPN the other night of, um, oh, I'm going to forget his name. So they were comparing Peyton Manning, football player, to guy's last name was Leaf. I don't remember who just completely just burned out. He was, you know, a complete washout. And it's because Peyton Manning knew how to work. And this other guy, as talented as he was, he didn't know how to work. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. Do you find so? So I'm curious, did you find that when people inside of your team had the discipline to work hard, who were maybe not as talented, did they kind of end up being models or role models for the people who were, were more talented and, and sort of force them to up their game? Yeah, so that that's what happened. I suppose it, it sounds familiar to the story on ESPN in that the guys who were schoolboy heroes and automatically mm-hmm. almost went up the ranks and got into the team almost naturally. They were on the team sheet before they even had to earn it. Yeah, Th- Those guys struggle more in the life after sport. And, mm-hmm. and also sometimes totally fail. So I, a couple of guys come to mind that were absolutely monsters, like physically, and breezed through the schoolboy world of, of sport, and then came into the professional world and totally bombed and totally failed, because they never learned how to work because they never had to. They, and, they ne- and, right. and nor did they have the parenting, perhaps, or the mentorship to actually add that invaluable skill. Yeah, right. And so then failure, when they failed, they, they had no coping mechanism for it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, yeah. And it's something you talk about in the book again, is, is this, you know, the person who um, almost straight A's and does well and is programmed to think, you, you, you know, against the Carol Dweck work that you're only good if you succeed or you're only good if you achieve well, mm-hmm. you know, good grades or good points or a good salary, they're the people who, who are most likely to block disruption or, and actually never disrupt themselves. And I really took that out of, the, out of your book that they're the ones who actually really struggle most because they have so much to lose in their own head in jumping from career to career. But you mentioned a couple of examples of really brave women who did jump and succeeded massively. You know, Aiden, that so uh, so. Let's talk about that in a second. But I think that's such an interesting insight that I had not had. You just connected a dot for me that I hadn't connected. This idea of 
when your identity is completely wrapped up in, in, in whether or not you get the A, just to use that, then you're the one who's most likely to disrupt or, or allow for disruption because you feel the most threatened by it. Your identity becomes the most at risk. Is yeah. that what you were just saying? Yeah. So I suppose yeah. where, where I would have seen that example is somebody who is in um, a traditional organization and is in a position of power and who was very, very comfortable with the status quo because they've worked really, really hard to, to get there. And in particular, somebody who's done it against the odds, perhaps, you know, let's be honest, it's harder for uh, female entrepreneurs and female business women to get to the top. So it's going right. to, so when they get there, there's probably a, a, a less likelihood for them to want disruption in any sense around mm -hmm. the company, around their role, and particularly they're less likely to then disrupt themselves. You know, it's an interesting question that you raise uh, of bringing the gender piece. I think I think there are two things going on. They're kind of countervailing forces. Because on the one hand, as you pointed out, women, there's been research that women have to be two and a half times more competent than, than a man to be able to be on equal footing. Um, and so there is a sense that they will have worked very, very hard. And once they get there, and I think this is where some of the mean girls idea comes in, they, they really want to protect that. And so maybe more, more resistant to change. On the other side of that, I think because women have been left out of the traditional network inside of corporations, certainly, they do tend to be more comfortable playing where others are not playing, um, of taking on market risk, of, of being a disruptor in the first place, not because they were like, I'm going to go you know, play where no one else is playing. I'm going to go start a business where no one else is. Um, because they think it will be fun, but because they've been forced into it. So it's an interesting question that you raise is I think there are certain aspects of disruption that are easier for um, for a man to take on. And I think there are certain aspects of it that are easier for women to take on. And so they they probably end up balancing out, but there are definitely some some gender differences there, which is which is interesting. I'm glad you raised that. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I didn't even, that was just organically now, but I, I was, I was more thinking of, of actually like, let's park the gender thing for a moment because, yeah. and, and actually think of somebody who is a straight A student gets the job. Their parents are like little Johnny's done so good. He's, he's gone to Harvard. He's got the role. He's got, he's married the high school sweetheart. Everything's perfect. Right. His kids are drones he's on a great path and that is who he is and he may be miserable he may be miserable in his role right and there's the, the two things i see with that person is one they are so unlikely to disrupt themselves because they're afraid because that is who they yep. are and in the, who their parents think they are and then be like they're, they're so they so then they'll block innovation and actually if you come as an innovation consultant or a change management person or a transformation specialist, they'll be kind of going, uh oh, I can't see, I cannot see how, you know, this has any tangible effect on the future. While if you come and give me a new printing machine that gives me an extra 10 sheets per 100 sheets, I totally see the black and white value of that one. Yeah. And, you know, it's okay. So uh, absolutely agreed. So when you've got your identity tied to it completely um, to where you are, then you are likely to block change. And I think that this goes to this idea of whenever, you know, I'm coaching someone and, and I suspect you've 
do something similar to this is that I, I try to say, okay, if you're trying to move something forward, and this goes to the notion of battling entitlement and a willingness to get buy-in for your ideas is to look at who your stakeholders are and look at what jobs the stakeholders are trying to get done. Not only the functional job of, you know, we're trying to get, you know, increase revenue by 10% this year and increase profitability by 15%, let's say, but what emotional jobs are, is that person trying to get done? Is this person trying to move up the ladder? Is this person um, trying to just really learn? Is this person sort of sunsetting in their career? Is this person feel very threatened, like you just said, um, by having any sort of change that somehow they will be less worthwhile? I think if we can figure out what emotional jobs people are trying to get done that we're working with, we can help assuage whatever fear they may have, um, getting buy-in for the innovative idea that we're trying to move forward, whether that is a project or we ourselves trying to change jobs inside of the firm that we're in um, and getting buy-in from them. But if we can figure out what it is that they're afraid of, we can find oftentimes ways to assuage that concern. Yeah, one of the key points I've, I've, I took out of Disrupt Yourself is finding the unmet need so in a way that's an unmet need mm -hmm. for, for your right. collaborator or or perhaps a way to unlock somebody but you talked as well about the gender thing and trying to find a place to play where nobody else is playing in and you used the great example of koalas eating eucalyptus where it's poisonous <laughs> for everybody else and they can survive on it and i think this is really interesting to if we could elaborate on this whitney is market risk versus competitive risk because while that's an established business paradigm, it can be applied to yourself as well. Could we elaborate yeah, a little bit? Absolutely. So let me let me give a little bit of the backdrop. So when I I talk about this idea of dis personal disruption, it's it's based in disruption disruptive innovation theory, which um, states that when you um, pursue a disruptive course, your odds of success are actually six times higher than they would be if you don't and your revenue opportunity is 20 times greater. And one of the the linchpins or building blocks of this theory is this idea of taking on market versus competitive risk or what I like to describe as playing where no one else is playing either because they don't want to play there or they haven't thought of playing there. Like you just said, Aiden, we typically think of it in terms of a product or a service, but let me paint what that could look like when you're thinking about you as an individual. So uh, taking on competitive risk for a person could be that you look at the landscape, you're looking to try something new, you see this job, there's this huge opportunity, you've got the job posting to prove it, either internally or externally, it doesn't matter. You just then have to figure out if compared to the 10, 20, 50 other people who are applying for this particular position, you can compete and win. And so you're taking on competitive risk. And the theory says that you're less likely to be successful when you take on competitive risk. Now, market risk is where there isn't a job posting, um, but there's a problem that you think needs to be solved and you think that you can actually solve it. Like the koala, you've got this distinctive skill set that will allow you to solve that problem. And so if you can persuade your stakeholders to create a position or create a market, guess who's going to get the job? You're probably going to get it. And so that's taking on market risk where your odds of set success are much higher. Now, what trips us up here, because you're probably listening to this and thinking, well, yeah, that's logical. I get it. What happens is that competitive risk actually 
feels less risky because whenever you're taking on competitive risk, it's like you're literally going into battle. There's this enemy, there's 10 other candidates, there's opposition. And even though competition is hard, at some level, it's actually very comfortable to us because it's very certain. We can kind of quantify what the risk looks like. And when you take on market risk, you're trying to create a job for yourself there's no enemy, there's no opposition. And so that feels uncertain and therefore feels scary. And so even though the data tells us that market risk is less risky, our brain thinks that competitive risk is less risky. And so one of the hacks that I use is by knowing this data point is say to myself, okay, I know it feels scary to take on market risk to play where no one else is playing, but the data is telling me that if I'm willing to do that, I am more likely to be successful. And so that's what we want to do with our careers. Certainly you can do it as an entrepreneur, but it's it's important to do as a person and in our careers. Certainly this is something I've done in the past is I've ri- written down a job spec for the type of job I would like. And then gone after mm-hmm. that. And you, obviously, you're going to have to, like anything, buy a house. You're not going to find exactly what you want, but you'll get pretty much there. And I just find that there's more and more roles popping up that just aren't competitive risks, risk jobs. Like there's roles now, if you type into LinkedIn, that didn't exist even a year ago. And now there yeah. are tons of them. Yeah, I think that's a great proof point of the conversation that we're having. And yet I find that so few of us are willing to sort of say, what is it that, you know, I want to do? And I think it comes back to this notion of we're not actually sure what we want to do. And so we struggle and we want someone just to tell us what we want to do. But if we're learning to be self-reflective, we actually have a clearer sense of what we want to do than we think we do. And so it's important to just have people around us that can be our truth tellers and sort of say, actually, you really do enjoy doing that. Why don't you go after that and see if you carve or craft a role that will allow you to play to those three or four superpowers that you have? It's so important to have the support of those around you. So say, for example, your husband said, listen, I see an opportunity in this brand new field and you know nothing about that field. And he he goes, I need, I need, I'm going to go for this. And you're not working and, and you have a mortgage mm-hmm. and your kids are just about to go to college, which I know is extremely expensive in the States. And you yeah. have all this in your face. And then all of a sudden, there's this massive risk coming going, I'm going to do a market risk jump in my own career. And it's it's so risky. And, it, and this is where so many people say to me, oh, it's, it's fine for you. I kind of go, it's not fine for me. I I did take that risk. I changed careers. I changed industries. And it's really risky. And you have to have support of those around you. Yeah, you do. I hope at some point you're you're sharing the details of, of your move. I, I think there, again, there are two sort of things going on here when we're making that big move of like you just painted that scenario of my husband saying, I want to go take market risk. I think there are two things happening. There's this functional question that people are asking, and there's the emotional question. And certainly we do have constraints, right? If you've got children, if you've got a mortgage, you do need to put food on the table. And taking market risk means you don't necessarily know if there's exactly a market for what you're doing. On the other hand, it it doesn't necessarily mean that you're just jumping willy-nilly off of a cliff. Taking market risk can mean that you you still have a job and you're scoping out what you want to do next. And you're looking out there and you're thinking, you know what, here are all my skills. Here are problems that I think need to be solved. 
I am going to start approaching people and um, suggesting, you know, we have a meeting and have a conversation with them. So let me give you an example. And I would encourage your listeners to actually listen to this whole story. It's, it's Sarah Feingold on my podcast. So she got a law degree. She also was on Etsy because she was a jewelry maker. This was early days. So this is like 10 years ago. So she's on Etsy and she start, you know, because she's a lawyer, she starts looking and says, you know, their, their policies, they're really not that you know, well mapped out because they had like 10 employees at the time. So she says, you know what? I think they need me. I think they need my legal expertise. So she calls in, um, she's able to talk to the CEO because again, there's 10 people at the company or 15 people at the company and says, you need me. I'm getting on a plane. I'm going to come down and interview for this job. She flies down. She interviews for the job. They create a job for her and she becomes the 17th employee of Etsy. So on the one hand, she did take market risk, but she didn't jump off a cliff willy-nilly. I mean, she already had a job. She just figured out how to take market risk when she was thinking about what she was going to go do next. And so I think that's one important aspect of this. The other, though, just circling back quickly, is that sometimes we think that we're not jumping because it's about the money. We don't have enough money to do this. We don't have enough cushion. But I remember having a conversation with a fellow who said to me that I actually have 10 years worth of money in the bank and I still won't jump. And so I think it's important when we're saying I'm not willing to try something new, I'm not willing to take on market risks is to ask ourselves, okay, what am I really willing, not willing to do here? Is it about the money or is it about something else? Is it about my identity? So those are two things I would consider as, as you're looking at trying to incorporate more market risk into your career and in your life. Yeah. And what, what's your advice for, for example, that guy who has a, a cushion there? I mean, the safety net of 10 years wages, and I'm, you know, I'm guessing he's senior enough in his role if he has that. Like, I, I know so many people who are like, I'd love to start my own thing. I'd love to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I, I totally get it. Remortgaging your house is not an option for so many people. They don't, they're brave, right. but they're not that brave. Or, you know, maybe they don't have the support of a spouse or a loved one to do that, which is fine. That happens as well. But what what do you say to people like that? Well, I I, I go to the the five whys that um, Toyota popularizes. When something's not working, you ask why, and then you you know. So, for example, in this particular scenario, he might say, you know, I have ten years worth of money in the bank and I won't quit my job. Why? And then he might say, well, um, you know, maybe maybe that's not enough. And then I ask why again, and just kind of keep playing that out. And what you'll oftentimes find, and I think in this particular instance, um, I don't know what the answer was because I didn't ask him the five whys, but I think what we would have found out is that it went back to this notion of if I leave this, I leave, I leave prestige and I leave stature and I'm not sure who I'll be when I don't have that anymore. And so I think, you know, I suspect something similar to happen to you when you went from being a professional rugby player, a professional athlete, there's a great sense of identity that's attached to that in our society globally. And so when you lose that identity, who are you now? And so my advice to someone in that particular situation is what, what are some things that you can do to shore up your identity, your sense of who you are in that transition? Um, 
you know, are there things that you can do that will allow you to still hold on to that? That would be my advice. And that's what I would coach around is how do we find ways to anchor you in your old identity as you're transitioning to your new one, when it's not actually about the money, but it's about your identity and your sense of self. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense, actually. And like my own view on it is you have to kill that old person. This is why I think the work you do on your book and also getting yourself a mentor in anything you do, whether it's a sports person or a business person, is so important. The last piece then, Whitney, is how do you encourage companies to disrupt themselves? And right. I mean, this is the one I find extremely difficult that they know this ship is sinking or headed for an iceberg. Right. Because again, I mean, this goes back to Clayton's theory. The very thing that made you successful is now what's making you vulnerable. Um, when I'm working with companies, I, my approach is to, again, come back to this idea of the individual and the notion that every single um, organization is a collection of S-curves, meaning every person is on an S-curve. And so um, I will focus on, number one, you know, diagnosing where people are on the S-curve. And so, in fact, if your listeners want to take this S-curve locator, they can just go into WhitneyJohnson.com backslash innovation system. So what I'll do is say, okay, so let's say you've got 100 people working for you. Um, in order for you to be able to disrupt yourself as a company, your people inside of your company need to be disrupting themselves. Because as they're disrupting themselves, they're putting themselves in a position where they're taking on difficult challenges, they're stretching, they're stretching, and in that stretching, they're innovating. And so um, according to my research, what you want to have is roughly 70% of your people in the sweet spot of that S curve. So the sleek, steep back of the curve where all their neurons are firing and they feel very competent and therefore confident. You can give them tough things to do and they're going to be able to figure it out. You want to have at any given time, 15% who are at the low end, they're just starting out on an S curve. So they've just jumped from one curve to the next they have lots of days where they feel like they don't know what they're doing. It doesn't mean that they're not, they don't have domain expertise in one area, but they're in a new role or on a new project where they're being stretched. And so they're at the low end of the S curve. And then you have 15% of your people who are at the top end of the S curve who are able to mentor, who are able to give guidance to people who are still in the steep spot of the curve and people who are at the bottom. But those people at the top, they're your danger zone because once you get to the top of the curve, you can stay there for a moment and survey the view and help other people up. But then if you don't jump, your plateau becomes a precipice. Um, and so those people, you're at risk of either losing and having all this talent walk out the door or them just getting stale and becoming a, an albatross for the company overall. Or you can take these top performers who have gotten to the top of the curve and say, it's time to reassign you. I need you to jump to the bottom of a new curve. I need you to put you in a, I need to put you in a situation where you are going to feel like you don't know what you're doing again because then you're going to figure it out and in the figuring out you're going to innovate and that's going to drive our organization forward. So, I think if you get your organization to the point where they're already about to be pushed off the ledge, it may be a little too late, but if you'll start this process early on of seeing company collection of S curves how do I optimize where my people are on the curve? As you put them in those situations, they will, they will naturally find ways to innovate and disrupt not only themselves, but the organization. Yeah, I love that. And 
I suppose one of the hard, hard, one of the real realities we have to face as well is some people are at the top of the S curve for a reason in that there's nowhere for them to jump. That's right. And so there are things that you can do there. Number one, they are at the top and, and they want to do new things. And so it's important to find new things for them to do inside of the organization. It may be just managing or mentoring. Um, and then sometimes there are people at the top of the curve and they want to stay there. And that's where um, you as a manager or a leader, it's really important to say to them, okay, you can choose to jump to a new curve inside of our organization or I can push you off. And that means that you're maybe not in our organization anymore, but we need people who are willing to disrupt themselves because we're only as innovative as you're willing to be innovative. And, you know, and I think that's okay. Sometimes we're just on the wrong curve. In fact, I feel very strongly that oftentimes when people get fired, it has everything to do with the fact that it was time for you to jump to a new curve and you weren't willing to jump. So the universe gave you a nudge. I think in many, many cases, that's true. I grew up in Ireland in a park, one of our national parks here, the Phoenix Park. And my dad basically managed the park. So he used to tell us about the trees and all this kind of stuff. And as a kid, obviously, it was really boring. But one of the things <laughs> that, that always stuck with me was when he was replanting. So there was a main avenue which had these beautiful big trees all the way down it. And he, he told me, well, we, had to, we recently replanted in between every one of those big trees. Straight away, I was like, well, what happens to the older tree? And he goes, well, older trees always die and we have to take them down. But in the meantime, they provide shelter for the younger ones. And it, only recently I drove through that park and I, I thought of this S-curve jump. And I was like, the, so the older statesman in the, in the company still has a massive role in sheltering, right. passing on the no knowledge to the younger saplings. And then they fill the role. And it's just like the S-curve jumps. What a beautiful metaphor. You can be noble in that step down. And, and, and this is another analogy in the same space is where I find it really sad is when you see the tree die of disease or, or it's got almost like a cancer so it's it's eating itself and it's angry about having to be you know mm -hmm. be overlooked when mm -hmm. when it's managed like you say like where the company takes charge and go look i've done a portfolio management of my people here i need to look after jack chloe over there michelle they all need to be moved on in a in a noble way where they're exactly. made and they need to pass on their knowledge. Exactly. That's just beautiful. I love that. I, I hope you'll continue to write and think about that because it's a wonderful metaphor. I love your book. I love your work, Whitney. It's been Thank a pleasure you. speaking to you and I hope we'll, we'll speak again in the future when you, when you launch your next book. Oh, thank you. So Whitney Johnson, author of the great book, Disrupt Yourself, and you can catch Whitney's podcast on iTunes and all the other platforms, SoundCloud, etc. The Disrupt Yourself podcast. Whitney Johnson, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden.